This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Bob Comsick. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. After essentially following the guidance of the National Vaccine Advisory Panel, the Ford government unveiled its plans for the booster shot rollout. Though 70 and older, as well as various other groups, can make appointments now, while everyone else will have to wait until January. Then the government announced it would not require mandatory vaccination for healthcare workers for now. Libby discussed the developments with Dr. Peter Uni, Scientific Director of Ontario's COVID Science Advisory Table. I came to consider this to be work in progress. You remember uh, a few months ago, I sounded like a broken record, the, uh, you know, talking about vaccine certificates again and again, that it probably is a good idea. Um, and here we are and we have them now. Uh, here we will see what happens next. Uh, it is challenging and I can understand, you know, that you then uh, also want to consider what's happening. Do we have a shortage of staff, etc.? Looking at Quebec, for example, we felt when we just were making our statement responding to the premier that uh, the advantages clearly are favoring vaccine mandates if you have such a clear and strong case. And we only have, we need to be aware of that, strong cases for hospitals, long-term care homes and retirement homes. This idea that it's, I mean, would people want their surgeon to be unvaccinated? And uh, our audience knows I was actually in the hospital last April at the height of the third wave, not COVID-related. I got excellent care, but just about the most stressful aspect of it was that I did not know if the people who were treating me and who were coming very close to me and there were, you know, bodily fluids involved, whether they were vaccinated. It is extremely stressful. Yeah, look, I think there are two aspects right now. One is we need to be aware of that. We're in a really good spot. Even so, case numbers now are slowly creeping up a little bit. We're in a really good spot. Case numbers are low. We have really high vaccine coverage, etc. So don't let now this discussion regarding vaccine mandates in hospitals deter you from going and seek care if it's needed. It's really important now. We can't continue with what we did before. You know, we have really a lot of people who didn't get the appropriate care during the last 18 or 20 months, and this needs to change. Um, I think the overwhelming majority of people, you know, of course, will be vaccinated even in hospitals who don't uh, mandate it. But uh, I see where you're coming from and I agree with you. I believe that we have a really strong case. Patients in hospitals are vulnerable. Therefore, it would be great if all the staff were fully vaccinated. What we need to acknowledge is, you know, that GTA and uh, Ottawa, for example, are probably a bit of a different ball game than, uh, you know, more rural places. And there may be more of a challenge there sometimes. And uh, I can see that, that this could be an issue in certain situations. I still believe, you know, considering everything is just the right thing to mandate if your cl uh, clients or your patients are vulnerable. Uh, moving right along to the booster shot, one of the things I'm not quite clear on 
so you can, uh, if you're in one of those groups, you can book uh, as of next week. But is that interval of six months, is that going to be very strict? Or, you know, if you're five and a half, there's no problem. Uh, do you have a handle on that? I don't know. Um, you know, it, it, we need to be aware of that. Most of us have had longer intervals than just four weeks, which means that uh, our immune response on average is a bit better than in many other places in the world because we didn't slavishly adhere to the three to four week interval. Great news. Um, um, now, the, the point is, this means that for most of us, it doesn't really matter whether it's six, six and a half or seven months or so. Just let's get it then because uh, it will uh, mean more protection. I won't know or I don't know right now how stubbornly, you know, the six month cutoff will be pursued. I, I believe it will probably be a challenge that just uh, on the website you won't be able, if you're not, you know, just uh, beyond the six months that you might not be able actually to, to register. But uh, let's find out how it goes. Dr. Peter Uni, Scientific Director of Ontario's COVID Science Advisory Table. This is Zuma Radio's Best to Fight Back. I'm Bob Comsick for Jane Brown. Many healthcare providers are opposed to and disappointed by the province's decision not to make vaccinations mandatory for all healthcare workers for now. The rationale apparently was a fear many procedures and treatments would be cancelled because of large numbers of staff leaving, but many hospitals have their own vaccine mandates. For more, Libby spoke with Dr. Doris Greenspoon, CEO of the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario, as well as Dr. Alon Vaisman, infectious diseases and infection control physician at Toronto's University Health Network, and David Moucher, President CEO of Windsor Regional Hospital. We're disappointed uh, that the answer was no, but that's not going to deter us as Windsor Regional Hospital. And I know UHN um, in doing in continuing to do the right thing. I can tell you, since uh, the government's announcement, I've been inundated with our own staff, community members, patients sending me emails, texts, and calls. The vast majority, 99%, just like our vaccination rate have been, please do not change your policy. As you just stated, it it doesn't eliminate the risk, but it greatly reduces the risk. Um, And as hospitals, we have to set the example. And the last point on it, you know, surgeries have been canceled, at least in our organization, when we had outbreaks um, on our floors. Um, We had to uh, stop admissions to particular floors, and therefore we had to cancel surgeries as a result. That's what we're trying to avoid here. And again, we won't eliminate it, but we greatly reduce it by saying today, 100% of Windsor Regional Hospital staff is vaccinated. Doris Greenspoon, uh, you are advising people that if they have to go to the hospital, make sure you go to a hospital with a vaccine mandate. 100%. So first, uh, let me uh, congratulate all the CEOs that stood up for science and to protect patients. RNO has been since July asking the Premier to move on mandatory vaccination. I want to say to every Ontarian, testing and vaccination are two different things. And if our Minister of Health doesn't understand that, then we need to go to square zero. Testing is for surveillance. Vaccination is used for prevention. They're not interchangeable. So for those that say, oh, we will only require testing, ain't good enough for patients, period. And 
to the question you just did about does it affect Windsor Hospital or UHN or CHEO, etc., the ones that are doing the right thing, no, it doesn't affect them. It affects the ones that do not have the policy because the 57 people plus the others, plus the others, plus the others that were suspended or let go because of not being fully vaccinated are going to the places that are with looser policies. So those patients will get worse care even with more people unvaccinated, which is what happened in the U.S. and why we're asking a absolutely blanket policy for this entire province. And the premier needs to just take a vaccine of courage. (laughs) <laughs> Dr. Vaisman, as a, a, a doctor on the front lines, what's your reaction to this decision? It certainly would have been helpful for the premier to announce on the provincial level for the vaccines to be mandated in the healthcare workers. I think um, overall the vaccine mandates have become a contentious issue, but really the focus should be on these high-risk settings. So places like hospitals, long-term care facilities, schools, are places where it really does make sense to mandate vaccines because that's where transmission events are occurring, and that's where the people who are going to be infected are very vulnerable to getting bad outcomes. So, you know, in these settings where we already mandate vaccination for other things, it makes sense to add COVID to that list. Overall, overwhelming support from vaccination mandates in hospitals from various sectors, the healthcare professionals is very reassuring. It's nice to see that. Uh, You know, when you consider about flu vaccinations, how difficult it was to mandate that over the years. Perhaps that will also change now with flu vaccination as well and whatever vaccines come in the future to protect uh, patients and staff. Dr. Alon Vaisman, infectious diseases and infection control physician at the University Health Network. David Moucher, president and CEO of Windsor Regional Hospital. And Dr. Doris Greenspoon, CEO of the Registered Nurses Association. I'm Bob Comsick, and this is UMA Radio's Best to Fight Back. Coming up after the break, Remembrance Day and the flap over the flag. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Bob Comsick. Fight Back with Libby's Nimer has the most informed guests on the week's hot topics, and we also rely on you for your valued opinions. Here are some of the best calls of the week. Ron and Guelph weighed in on mandatory vaccinations for healthcare workers. The police keep arresting the same guys uh, over and over again. I mean, I don't understand why. If you're caught with a gun doing a crime, how can you possibly get out on bail? But the time change and Remembrance Day flag controversy is what most wanted to talk about, like Norm in Aurelia. You know, we've always served our military people that fell overseas during the First Second World War. I was in the armed forces myself. I wore a United Nations TAM for a while. I served in Germany as well, Lord. And, uh, you know, I think our governments need to look at one thing. If they served in our military, they would know what the respect was of our fallen dead. But our prime minister and his father never served overseas. I heard many stories about how his father refused to go. And, you know, money talks in in situations like that, but I think we need to lower, open our, put our flag up and put our flag down. I cannot see First Nations leaders saying that they would not respect their dead 
and they were lost a lot of people as well. And I served with some of the First Nations people, and they respected what we did. Jody in Toronto had these thoughts about the flag. Prime Minister Trudeau has described the situation with the uh, residential school as a black mark on our history. We have many, many black marks on our history, be it the indigenous, Japanese, the Chinese, the Europeans. Yes, spots. But we have evolved. We have evolved, and we are the best country in the whole world. And we have to take pride in that and keep our pride and respect for how we got there. People have given lives. They have sacrificed for what we have. I think the flag should be lowered in recognition of Remembrance Day and then raised and kept raised. We cannot let one particular thing that happened in the past to eclipse what we And that's all I have to say. Joe and Mississauga feels raising the flags to lower them was the only option. It's imperative that we have to we have to lower the flag and raise it again because it's just there's just too many things that have gone wrong with our with our veterans over the years and 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 the lack of respect and uh, and and the way things are uh, the memory of our soldiers from the World War One and two is fading away every year and and if um if if they're not going to lower the flags raise the flags and lower the flags again. I'm, I'm going to be very, very ashamed to be a Canadian. It's just going to, that's just going to be the ultimate slap in the face. It, it, it just, they, they have to do it. And, and I can't see anybody having a problem with it at the first nations because it's going to be back to normal again after remembrance day. They have to respect what they did. As for the time change, Daryl in Toronto prefers the status quo. We should leave things the way they are with the two switches a year. I, I appreciate the extra light during the summer very much. To me, the idea of the, the, you know, the light at night. I mean, the other alternative is why don't we just have one clock time for the whole world and function from there. In the spring, when we change the clocks, why not move family day or whatever the holiday is to the Monday that we change the clocks and then people have the weekend to adjust to, you know, a mere hour's difference. Jan in Guelph shared this suggestion. How about changing it to half an hour? <laughs> this was discussed with some friends of mine last year and me, and we all thought if it was just half an hour, it would, you know, just make that difference in the morning between the dark time. It would start getting lighter sooner. Do you know well, what I'm saying? Well, and have, yeah. uh, maybe that would be the answer. Just half an hour, move it. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week comes from Helen in Toronto, who says Canadian flags should be raised and remain up after Remembrance Day. My grandfather was in the war, in the First World War. He's buried in Prospect Cemetery. They always told us there was young people, 17 and 18, went to war. They never came back. How do their families feel about all this? I say we should the flag for the 11th, then raise it again as we should. And we should never forget the people of the war because they're the ones that helped us. If, not, if they didn't fight for us, we wouldn't be here now. 
That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back here on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us from noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca, follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby, and call our Fightback voicemail anytime, 416 367 9636. I'm Bob Comsey. Join us again next weekend and we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Bob Comsick on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Are we turning our clocks back an hour, possibly for the last time? Well, the province passed legislation making it permanent about a year ago, but it will only take effect should Quebec and New York State decide to do the same. Meanwhile, many experts say if we go with a single time, it should be standard time. Libby spoke with Dr. Patricia Lakin-Thomas, Associate Professor of Biology at York University. It would be a good plan if we were getting rid of the time changes and we're going to standard time permanently. So on Sunday, we're going to fall back an hour and we're going to be falling back to standard time, which is when the sun at its highest point in the sky, which would be noon, actually matches when it says noon on the clock. And that's the best time for our bodies to be synchronized with the day-night cycle, and that would be the best for everybody's health. And if that's what we were doing year-round, uh, that would be great. Unfortunately, the legislation for Ontario says what we ought to do is let our clocks move forward an hour in the spring and then keep it that way all year-round. So we'd be on daylight saving time all winter. And those of us who study biological clocks think that would be a bad idea for our health. Even now, it, it is really dark when most people get up. Uh, and I guess the idea behind daylight saving time was to give us an extra hour in the afternoon. That's right. Um, in the summer, it's kind of nice to have that extra hour of light late in the afternoon, early evening for those people who have the leisure to go out and uh, use it. It was originally started back in the early 19th century by somebody who wanted to be out on the golf links a little later in the summer. But if you move that light a little later in the afternoon, it also means it's later in the morning. So in the winter, we would be getting up essentially an hour earlier according to the sun. And in Toronto, we wouldn't see the sun until 9 a.m. or later which means most people trying to get up and get to their jobs or get kids into school are going to be doing that in complete darkness if we were to keep daylight saving time year-round. You mentioned the golf links, and I think a lot of people have misconceptions about why it started in the first place. It was something to do with uh, agriculture and getting the crops in. Uh, that's a myth, right? Oh, yes. Farmers never liked it. Uh, farmers will follow the sun. Their animals and their crops are going to follow what the sun is doing. 
and it's never been an advantage for farmers. It was actually thought of in the early 20th century during World War One as a way to save energy, to save burning of coal for heat and light. And they tried it again in World War Two and in the 1970s, always making the um, assumption that it was going to somehow save energy. But when people have gone back and looked at the numbers, it never really saved energy at all. And sometimes it was even negative. There was more energy used. So there's never been a good reason for energy saving, never been a good reason for farmers. Um, the only reasons uh, are that might be helpful for daylight saving time is that little bit of extra light on a sun, summer afternoon for a little more leisure or shopping. It's actually been tried, daylight saving time year-round, was tried in a few places. It was tried in the U.S. in the 1970s for a couple of years. The U.K. tried it year-round, daylight saving time for a few years later on. Um, Russia tried it, and people just hated it. They they would all vote for it at the beginning and say, gee, that sounds great. Let's have summertime all year-round. But after the first winter, when they're getting up in the dark, uh, people just hate it. And so those countries switched back, but unfortunately they switched back to changing the clocks twice a year, which is what we do now, instead of switching back to year-round standard time, um, which would be best for us because then we'll be closer to the sun time, which is what we need to set our biological clocks every day, and we would eliminate these problems of switching twice a year. Dr. Patricia Lakin-Thomas, Associate Professor of Biology at York University. This is Zoomer Radio's Best to Fight Back. I'm Bob Comsick for Jane Brown. The Trudeau government will raise flags on federal buildings next week so that they can be lowered again to honor veterans. They'll be raised at sunset Sunday and lowered Monday to recognize National Aboriginal Veterans Day. Flags will then be raised again before being lowered on November 11th. After Remembrance Day, flags will be raised and stay there. Prior to this development, Libby spoke with prominent Indigenous business leader Chris Sankey, Indigenous elder Kat Krieger, and Brian Harris, Vice President of the Royal Canadian Legion. That's a situation that's uh, been brought up um, by the Prime Minister. As far as the Royal Canadian Legion is concerned, we have a policy. Our flags have been lowered to half-staff since, I believe it was May. And the directive that we have from our Dominion Command is on uh, for our Remembrance Day services, the uh, the flags will be raised so they can be lowered at half-mast, and they will remain at half-mast during the Remembrance Day services. They will be raised back up at the conclusion of the service, and then they will be lowered again back to half-mast where they were before the start of the service. And that is that is our policy, and that's what we're instructing our branches to do. Chris Sankey, uh, what's your view of this? Well, I, I could understand why they lowered the, the, the flags that have mass for the, the lost children on marked grades. Uh, many of my family members uh, went to residential school, uh, including some of my siblings, both uh, in residential school and day school. Um, I understand there's a lot of trauma. People ask me this question all the time, and I talk about when somebody, uh, somebody that's recovering from addiction, they're traumatized by this, what society has been able to 
put them into. And then when they ask about Indigenous people, I said, well, it's every day. We live with trauma every day. And it's, it's really hard for me to explain that, but those that are Indigenous could understand what, I, what I'm saying this very second. But that said, I have a grandfather that fought in World War II, and I want to remember him. I want to honor him. Um, it's a it's a huge symbol to so many of our our communities. They're heroes, uh, not just in our communities, but to Canada. Um, and I want to be able to celebrate that in a way that's meaningful, out of respect for not only him, but for all those that who have sacrificed the ultimate sacrifice, and those who sacrificed and came home, who had to deal with the the, the, the traumas of war. There are so many uh, Indigenous veterans that are out there that deserve to be honoured, and I am certain they are thinking about those young children who never made it home and those who did, who have had to live with trauma their entire lives. I'm okay. hoping they could collaborate on this issue and solve it and, and raise the flag. Kat Krieger, what about you? What are your thoughts? Actually, my father joined the Canadian Army just before I was born in the early 50s. And we were transferred to different places in the world, one of them being uh, Germany in 1960. So that was right when they were building the Berlin Wall. So there's that whole connection. And afterwards, with the military and the, um, you know, the, the Remembrance Day ceremonies on the military army bases are really huge. That, that flag is lowered, and we remember all those who were lost. At the same time, being Indigenous, um, you know, I, I see a... a a connection here in that we're honoring the ones who did not return home. And I have to recognize all my ancestors, whether they happen to be, you know, in the military, whether they are, you know, relatives who were subject to residential school. It's interesting that those who returned from the war were considered survivors. Our young ones who went to residential schools are considered survivors. And it's so different being working within the academic system. And, you know, if, we, if they come out of academic system, they're considered graduates. But that focus on that day, this, this November 11th, that recognizing our veterans, I think that should still go on in the way it has for a century. And then we go back again afterwards and that flag goes up and comes back down just to say, you know, the whole idea is lest we forget in both cases. Indigenous elder Kat Krieger, Indigenous business leader Chris Zanke, and Brian Harris of the Royal Canadian Legion. I'm Bob Comsick. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. Coming up, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.